1: Hey, welcome to this hour of the program, friends. Rob Breckenridge with you here on a Tuesday afternoon. We've got a lot to get to. We'll get to your phone calls uh, as well. want to begin this hour, though, with a look at the wild ride that cryptocurrency has been on over the last couple of years. And yes, it was a ride that made a lot of people a lot of money, but it was also a ride that cost a lot of people a significant amount of money. and left the future of crypto really uncertain. This is all explored in a new book. Uh, Zeke Fox is an investigative reporter with Bloomberg Businessweek. His new book out this week is called Number Go Up, Inside Crypto's Wild Rise and Staggering Fall. He's on the line with us here this afternoon. Zeke, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
2: Thanks so much for having me on.
1: Let's establish what we mean when we talk about the world of crypto or what we mean by crypto, right? I mean, people are familiar with Bitcoin. People have probably heard about these NFTs, these non-fungible tokens and this whole fad. But it is quite an all-encompassing world. What else do we mean when we talk about crypto?
2: So when I got started on this, I'm not like a crypto expert. Right. I was, like everybody else, I was just it was the pandemic. I'm on lockdown. I'm bored. And my friends are starting to text me about all these like random coins that i've never heard of like dogecoin or solana or ethereum (laughs) and it's i'm frankly found it kind of annoying i didn't think this was much of it and i as an investigative reporter i didn't think it was like the best target but i got totally sucked in i ended up spending two years trying to figure out get to the bottom of like what were all these things and why were their prices going up and up and turning random guys into millionaires and billionaires. And it turned into like the craziest adventure that I've ever been on. And by the end I was uh, in Cambodia investigating crypto fueled human trafficking. And then in the Bahamas with Sam Bankman freed at his $30 million penthouse just before the authorities got there. Uh, So there's no limit to how deep you can go if you get once you got sucked into crypto. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's the thing. And I mean, you know, to understand what it is, I, I guess in a way it's intended to be a currency. In another way, it's kind of like a, a commodity. I don't know. I mean, is it, is it both? Is it something else? How, how do we define even what this is?
2: So it's easy to be like overwhelmed by all the technical talk. Yeah. But I think like what this really is, is a way, a story, a way for... Whether you're the crypto guy is like a hustler or a true believer, it's a story that you can tell people to get them to send you lots of real money and so that you can send them back these like made up tokens. And I think that a lot of this like mumbo jumbo around the technology can really just be like is best ignored.
1: The title of the book uh, sort of speaks to all of this, Number Go Up, because for a long time, that's exactly what it did. And that's how people in the world refer to it, that uh, it was going up, and I guess it was just going to keep going up, or at least that was the claim. That was the argument, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, for a couple of years there, like it seems like ancient history, but it was like the logic of the financial world had been tossed out the window. And coins that crypto projects that had no that made no money had no plan for making money that like no one could even really explain were suddenly worth like tens of billions of dollars and people were talking about them like they were the future of art and finance and even like work in life itself mm-hmm. um so it was a lot of people got caught up in this in this mania and you know frankly it was kind of fun <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, and
1: as you noted, I mean, it, it does coincide with the pandemic. And, uh, you know, that's more than just a coincidence, right? The, you know, the, the boredom, I guess we could call it, maybe the, that a lot of people are experiencing. I mean, th- this proved to be a big factor in, in fueling all of this.
2: Definitely. Um, and also, the low interest rates played a big right. part. Um, one of the guys who I met early on was Alex Mashinsky, who ran this crypto quasi-bank called Celsius. And his pitch was, oh, give us your crypto and we'll pay you up to 18% interest. And I was sitting there wondering, okay, so if he's paying 18% interest. How does he make money so that he can cover that? And he told me, Zeke, it's not me. It's not the the banks are lying. They say they can only pay 0%. They could pay 18, too, if they wanted. And now, just a few weeks ago, he was arrested. It turns out... He was running a giant fraud. Um, and it's, it's truly impressive, like, what a high percentage of the crypto companies that I came across have now, like, blown up and are in bankruptcy or facing criminal investigations. Yeah, and, and
1: along the way, I mean, you meet and, and readers will meet quite a, a cast of characters. I mean, what is it about the crypto worlds and, and the sort of people it attracted?
2: So it, it takes, like, someone who's a bit different to To get into this and to see it through, because personally, if I bought you know a bitcoin for a thousand bucks and it was worth two thousand i 'd sell it and be happy with my thousand dollar game yeah. but in crypto you 've got people like Brock Pierce, he was a child actor who then became a big time dealer of virtual items and video games he get, uh, got in on crypto early, and whether it was just like a hustle of whether he really believed in it. He just kept holding, kept uh, coming up with new crypto companies. And, you know, by the time I met him, he's, uh, you know, on his mega yacht moored off the shores of the Bahamas.
1: Right. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, some of these people got really rich, like as you talk about in the book. I mean, you know, people became billionaires in this.
2: Yeah. I mean, Sam Bankman Freed, when I met him, he's 29 years old. He's, you know, on the cover of magazines, he's worth $20 billion On and he's a darling of senators in Washington and venture capitalists. But lost in all the hype was the fact that essentially this guy, he ran a crypto exchange called FTX in the Bahamas. It's more or less like a, think of it like an offshore casino where you go gamble on, you know, Dogecoin or Shiba Inu coin or Solana or Serum. Um, you know, people were treating FTX like, you know, it might take over Wall Street one day and not that many people were stopping to say, like, wait, uh, is this really something we want to encourage, like uh, regular people going to bet their savings on random coins that they really have no hope of understanding?
1: Yeah, Sam Sam's an interesting guy. And I mean, you, you know, you paint a, a picture of somebody who really kind of maybe believed his his own hype, like not your typical kind of uh, Ponzi scheme or, or fraudster sort of swindler, but somebody who I guess felt he was on some kind of mission.
2: Definitely. I mean, he, as a young man, set out to do good for the world. And he fell under the sway of this philosopher who said, you know what, you're pretty smart. The best way for you to help the world is to get really rich and give it all away. And like less than 10 years after that, you know, he's one of the richest guys in the world. And I think he really believed he had a chance to do things like fund the development of safe AI or stop the next pandemic. And when you think that like you're the hero of this sci-fi movie, then, I mean, I think that makes you dangerous. It makes you willing to take huge risks and to do anything it takes to keep your... You know, crypto exchange, your crypto hedge fund going so that, you know, because you believe that you're going to do good things for the world in the future.
1: Yeah. And I mean, FTX and its collapse is, you know, maybe the most high profile example of this bubble bursting, but maybe this bubble was inevitably going to burst. Do you think FTX, the collapse, kind of caused the, the bubble to burst or did the bubble bursting cause FTX to collapse?
2: Definitely the whole thing was doomed. Eventually, for people to invest in something, it has to be real. It has to make a product that other people want to use. Um, there's no... Number go up cannot work forever. We can't just all buy things and have them go up and up and up and then one day we're all rich. Um, so I don't think it's like one bad actor that discredited the crypto industry. Yeah. Wherever I looked in crypto, I would always ask people, hey, show me your product. How does it work in the real world? How is this going to help people are people using it that I can interview? Because, like, I'm an author. I want to see things that I can write about. And I just was continually disappointed. Um, I went to El Salvador, which had been touted as, like, the home of Bitcoin. The president made Bitcoin a legal currency. Supposedly, people were using it there, and it was changing their lives. When I went there, when I tried to use Bitcoin, I was treated like a very annoying tourist. I couldn't find any, like, regular people who liked to use it. Um, And... One of the first places I tried to pay with Bitcoin in El Salvador, the clerk said, Basura, he took away what I was trying to buy and sent me out of his store. Um, so, yeah, I, I just didn't see much uh, Bitcoin doing or crypto doing much good in the real world.
1: It's interesting to I me mean, with other investments or other stocks or, or whatever. like It's it's all about the numbers. But with, with crypto, it, it almost seemed you know, kind of political in a way, like this libertarian, uh, I, I think a real libertarian streak to all of this or just the notion that this is, you know, the great equalizer or, the, you know, the people are taking control from the banks, this whole thing. So what about that side of it where there's almost an ideological component to this frenzy?
2: Definitely. And Mashinsky from Celsius, who I mentioned before, was someone who really took advantage of that. He said, like, by giving investing in crypto and by putting your money with Celsius, you were sticking it to the banks and you were sort of rebelling against the system. Meanwhile, what you are really doing is giving your money to him so he could gamble it and lose it. Um, so there were a lot of uh, – the crypto story is super powerful, and there are all these guys who are thinking of ways to take advantage of any regular investors who get sucked in.
1: There were a lot of well-known people that got sucked in. I don't know if that's the right word, but kind of became a part of this and helped add to the frenzy. Part of this story is your own experience in what we refer to as NFTs. These were basically collectibles. I remember seeing Jimmy Fallon on The Tonight Show. He was showing his ape picture. I mean, these, this bored ape yacht club, which was kind of the, the biggest of them all. So you kind of went down this rabbit hole in particular, didn't you?
2: Yes. In the book, I write about my what was probably one of my scariest experiences, which was spending $20,000 of my own real money to buy a Bored Ape Yacht Club NFT, which sounds kind of fancy, but it's basically just like an ugly cartoon of a monkey. Yeah. And celebrities like Jimmy Fallon were supposedly paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for these at the time. And with my Bored Ape, I was able to go to Ape Fest, which was like a week-long ape party Um, It was basically a lot of, like, drunken stone guys milling around. Um, But I did see Jimmy Fallon there, and I was able to ask him about uh, how he felt about recommending this uh, investment to his viewers, which has uh, since really collapsed in value.
1: Something else you alluded to, um, you know, the, the human trafficking associated with this, I mean, the money laundering associated with this, this kind of Wild West under the table uh, sort of wheeling and dealing. I mean, it, that seems like the the perfect kind of world for the criminal elements. So to what extent then has the crypto world sort of been co-opted or, or taken over, infiltrated by, by the criminal side?
2: So there's one place where I saw that crypto really was useful, sadly, and that was for running these romance scams and essentially these are scammers that prey on people in wealthy countries and trick them into sending crypto to supposedly try out you know can't miss trading systems so much money is being this is such a big business that there's practically whole cities in cambodia filled with office towers where there's thousands of people who are just sending spam messages and entrapping people into these crypto scams and worst of all a lot of these people who send the messages like we've all got them the the spam messages are sent by people who are victims of human trafficking they're forced they're, they're tricked into coming to these towns and then once they start working they can't leave they're sold from employer to employer they're beaten and tortured and forced to send these uh to do run these crypto scams and i went to cambodia to Uh, Check this out to work with some investigative reporters who'd been exposed this issue. One thing that really surprised me was that in all my travels, I really saw very little use for crypto in the real world. When I got to Cambodia, I found money exchange stores where you could walk in, transfer your crypto to them from your phone and receive, you know, U.S. dollars, no questions asked.
1: So what about where we go from here? I mean, you know, this was quite a spectacular collapse. I I think, you know, the whole perception of of crypto maybe is is forever tainted, but it's not going away either. What's your sense of uh, what the future holds?
2: I think that anyone who's seen what I've seen or who reads number go up is going to be left like feeling pretty pessimistic. It's hard to imagine that we're going to get a whole new generation of people who are going to get by the promise of brand new coins. Um, That said, who knows? Maybe someone will come up with a good one. Um, But I think we'll never see craziness like we have over over the last couple of years.
1: Well, as I mentioned, the book is called Number Go Up, Inside Crypto's Wild Rise and Staggering Fall. Zeke, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this.
2: Thanks so much for having me on.
1: Okay, there you go. That's Zeke Fox. He's an investigative reporter with Bloomberg Business Week. His new book out this week. It's called Number Go Up Inside Crypto's Wild Rise and Stagger and Fall.
3: This incident's kind of a sad metaphor for Canada in a couple of ways. Um, the Prime Minister has a plane that doesn't work reliably and he doesn't have a house to live in reliably.
1: Yeah, it is a little bit embarrassing, I got to say, not just for the prime minister, maybe to some extent for the country. Uh, Yes, the prime minister doesn't have a residence that he can live in. And yes, at least for now, doesn't have a plane that can fly him home. The prime minister is in India still, even though the G20 summit has concluded would have been on his way except that his plane encountered technical issues. They had to send a military jet to to fly over and pick him up. So not a good look, not good optics, and kind of an embarrassing end to what's been an awkward G20 summit for the prime minister, most notably due to some of the tension that exists between Canada and India, or at least between Justin Trudeau and India's Prime Minister Modi. Uh, Back at home, though, Uh, There's not much good news awaiting the prime minister, of course, his party is uh, sinking in the polls and the the opposition conservatives, it seems, flying high, especially coming off a weekend convention. So why do things seem to be going so badly wrong for the liberals right now? Like nothing seems to be going right on the policy front. I think there are some big issues Canadians are concerned about and does not reflect well on the government, the economy, inflation, housing especially. Is this something they can turn around, or is this just a government that's at the end or near the end? Well, turning us off with some thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, our friend Matt Gurney, columnist and co-founder at The Line, theline.substack.com. Matt, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
0: Hey, man, great to be here. Way better to be here than stuck on the tarmac in New Delhi where it's 35 degrees
1: I mean, it's 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 kind of a sad commentary in a lot of ways, Um, you know, in terms of our commitment to maintaining this kind of stuff. I think that speaks to military issues, just our our seriousness as a country. It's just, and it's a bad look on the prime minister too, isn't it?
0: Yeah, you know, it is. um, I'm not looking to pile on. Like, there's so many cheap jokes we could make. But I think, Rob, I think you've struck the right tone. It's sad. It's embarrassing. Like, I was saying earlier on Twitter, and again, I'm not trying to be a swarmy little jerk about this, but at least this is the rare example of where the person most directly inconvenienced by a government failure is also most directly responsible for it. Like, normally when governments screw stuff up, other random people end up paying the price, and we get sad stories, in newspapers or on radio shows like yours or mine where we talk about the little guy being ground under by heartless bureaucracy or something. This isn't that. This is the yeah. guy didn't have the political courage to order the replacement planes, which were desperately needed years ago, and now he's stuck. So, look, I'm not going to I'm not going to try to torture the metaphor or anything like that. But you know what? Yeah. I mean, sometimes actions have consequences. Enjoy the ex- extended stay in India.
1: Well, and I, I think maybe previous trips to India have, have gone worse than this one. But, I mean, it was a little awkward. Ah. I think The prime minister was hoping for <laughs> some some great coverage on the international stage, maybe to offset some of these domestic woes. I mean, there, there wasn't much of that forthcoming, it seems.
0: No, and look, and, and Paul Wells writing at his own at his own newsletter, I just, I just think had it perfect. I, I I read it this morning and I laughed a little bit, but I almost felt like crying a little bit. Like it, it, you cannot ignore the irony or just the potency of the metaphor. The guy who is um sinking in the polls, can't seem to catch a break has been trying, I think kind of weirdly half-heartedly and belatedly to try and get back into the fight here can't even get his plane off the ground here. Like the, 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 like I said, the jokes write themselves.
1: But how serious are these problems, though? And, I mean, you, you've been writing about this and talking about this for the last few days. And there are certainly, I think, some partisan liberals who believe this is just a temporary blip, uh, that, that things will get back on track, that they just need a couple things to go their way. But how deep-rooted are these problems, do you think?
0: I think, well, first of all, you're right. There are still some partisan liberals who think that. But the important thing to remember is that there are always some partisans who believe right up to the last minute that they're going to win, even if, in fact, every other normal human being knows they're about to get thumped. Partisans are typically very bad judges of their own current political fortunes. And you know what? I haven't ruled the Liberals out. Like, if you were to ask me, how can the Liberals win again, I could sketch out what I think is a pretty reasonable scenario. Like, the economy improves, inflation falls, interest rates come down. Maybe we have some good housing announcements. The Conservatives somehow set their house on fire again because they're pretty good at doing that. Like it's not impossible to imagine a way for the Liberals to eke out some kind of win in, in, in six months, in a year, two years, whatever. But I think it's getting harder. Mm. to imagine those scenarios and their ways to any kind of victory are getting narrower and I, my honest sense is right now i would not bet the proverbial farm against justin trudeau but what i would say is this his fate is no longer in his hands if justin trudeau or even or some other liberal leader wins the next election it's going to be because the other guys defeated themselves And the liberals got lucky with a bunch of breaks that were just beyond their control. It's possible, but I think it's getting increasingly unlikely.
1: Yeah, and look, I think some of this is outside of control. I think governments often get either too much blame or too much credit for what's going on with the economy. But Canadians are increasingly feeling pessimistic about the the economy, and that's what the polls are showing us. Uh, housing remains a, a huge issue, and and I think that's an area where the government just isn't sure what to do. And there's just maybe a sense of, like, they're, they're stuck or they're out of ideas or, or whatever. They just There's all kinds of inaction on what's become maybe the most important issue like, What do you think it is right now that's that's causing them not just to drop in the polls, but really to, to sink in the polls?
0: Some of my conservative friends get um, annoyed with me when I say this because they, they want to claim the credit for this. Um, they want a pat on the back and for me to tell them they're doing a great job. Look, I love you guys, but I honestly think what's happening here is that the liberals are flaming out. And I think the conservatives are benefiting from that. And to the extent that I give them credit, uh, credit for this, I say... But they've positioned themselves well. They're, they're well positioned on the issues. They've had uh, pretty good communications in the last few months. Mm-hmm. And I think overall the Conservatives are doing everything they can to take advantage of the fact that the Liberals are in what looks to me to be pretty terminal decline. So I think you asked a question, Robin. It's the great question, and I think it's the only question right now. What's happening here? What explains this? And the honest-to-God truth is, as you and I both know, and the reason we're talking about this, there hasn't been anything. There hasn't been any one big particular single thing that we can look to and go, and there it is, and that's what happened. So i I think the only other explanation you kind of go with Occam's razor right like if you if you yeah. eliminate uh everything oh, no, it's not occam's razor that, that's <laughs> the other one uh, where if you eliminate the, uh, the um, every, if you eliminate the possible, whatever remains it m- must be the answer. I think I've totally mangled that, but I think the point uh remains <laughs> yes, it does. the re- The reality is I think what's happening to the liberals is that they've been coasting on almost empty for two years. They barely won in 2021. They never really seemed to come back from that near-death experience with any real energy or conviction or plan. And it was actually over a year ago that I wrote at the line that I was starting to smell death on these guys. And it wasn't due to any particular event or failure or scandal. But what I was realizing was that they just looked bewildered and adrift and confused. And it actually was all very familiar to me. These guys look, feel, smell, and act like the Kathleen Wynne Liberals did in Ontario in 2017, 2018. Mm -hmm. And one of the most important things that they have in common is that they're exhausted and they don't seem to realize it. Like, to me, that's the bit of bewilderment that actually to me ought to be the most alarming to them they're losing i think they understand that they're losing but they don't understand why they're losing and maybe it's denial maybe it's exhaustion maybe they're too close to it uh, as we wrote in the line on the weekend in our latest dispatch these guys seem to sincerely believe that they are the victims of a bit of bad luck, you know, events beyond their control with the war in Ukraine and the pandemic and stuff like that. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of, like, bad, evil conservatives doing Twitter disinformation. I, look, that's true. There are people spreading disinformation on Twitter, and there are bad things that have happened to the liberals that were beyond their control. But there's a lot, also a lot of things that these guys screwed up. There's a lot of things that they could have done better. There's a lot of mistakes they've made. They've pissed a lot of people off. And if you can't recognize that, if the only thing you think has happened here is disinformation and a plague, then you're out to lunch. And people that are out to lunch don't normally win elections.
1: You touched on the Conservatives, and, and I think you're right. I think, you know, the Conservatives had some good messaging as of late. And the Pierre Polyev, you know, he's, he's hammering of the housing issue at every opportunity. You know, that's, that's resonating with Canadians. But, you know, there's that question that governments do just kind of run out of steam. It happens. The Liberals have created some problems for themselves. Like, are the Conservatives just benefiting from the Liberal dumpster fire, or is this partly because of... Pierre Polyev or their strategy or their messaging? Like, is it because of him or in spite of him that the conservatives are benefiting?
3: That's
0: a really interesting question. And I I think the one thing you cannot take away from Pierre Polyev is whether through genius or blind luck, and I will allow his haters and lovers to uh, decide that for themselves, he is perfectly positioned for the mood of the moment. This is a guy who is strong on inflation, strong on housing, or at least has been talking about Mm -hmm. these things, which might, for political purposes, end up netting out to be the same thing. He was talking about inflation when the Prime Minister was dismissing any notion that he should be concerned about monetary policy. He was talking about inflation when the Prime Minister was lecturing reporters for bringing it up. He was talking about housing when the Liberals wanted to talk about anything else. That is a big part of what I think Polyev has going for him right now. But I really do think, like I said at the beginning, and with all respect again to my conservative friends here, I don't see this where we are right now as any validation of conservative genius. I think what we're seeing is an exhausted liberal government finally running out of gas.
1: We'll see where it all goes from here. A lot can change in a short period of time in politics, as we all know. But uh, full coverage, uh, of course, on all of this, The Line, that's at theline.substack.com. Matt, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Thanks, Bud. I have a great one. You too. Cheers. Matt Gurney is a columnist and co-founder at The Line. Uh, some coverage uh, from the weekend Conservative Convention and looking at the state of politics uh, in this country right now. What really feels like the Liberals uh, are well, almost imploding, honestly. Well, 25 years ago, the U.S. Department of Justice, along with 20 state attorneys generals, sued Microsoft, accusing Microsoft of violating U.S. antitrust laws. Now, it's, it's hard to remember maybe how big Microsoft was back then. And at the time, the U.S. government was arguing that Microsoft was illegally protecting what they viewed as, as, as a monopoly, uh, their Windows monopoly, and that they were using that advantage to basically kill off competitors to Internet Explorer. Uh, Microsoft lost that case, and it had a pretty, a pretty big ramifications uh, on the internet uh, in the tech world that ensued after that. So it was uh, late 1999 when that judgment came out. We've got maybe another similar case, or, or maybe of similar proportions, about to get underway this week. What's being referred to as the biggest antitrust trial in a generation in the United States, set to begin as Google uh, defends its position. Uh, against accusations that it's using unfair business practices to hold on to a monopoly on search traffic. Google says we dominate the market because we're good. We dominate the market because we've got the best product on the market. The U.S. Department of Justice, though, sees things otherwise. It's interesting because, uh, you know, this case began under the former, uh, the Trump administration, but is continuing now under U.S. President Joe Biden and his Department of Justice. So what are some of the issues at stake here and what does antitrust law mean in this context when it comes to big players? Not just in in tech, but in other industries. Uh, Joining us to talk about the implications, uh, some of the issues uh, around this case, we're pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon, Rebecca Hall Allensworth, who is a professor of law at Vanderbilt Law School, uh, teaches a, a course on antitrust law and an advanced antitrust course focused on big tech. And I'm sure we'll be watching all of this closely. Professor Allensworth, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Great to be here. Thank you. I mean, so is this pretty much, I mean, is this in some ways on par then with the, you know, this Microsoft trial from 25 years ago? Or is this maybe even bigger in some ways?
4: I think it's, it's at least on par and possibly bigger. Uh, the, the ubiquity of Google's products, especially search, cannot be overstated. And I think that, yeah, in some ways it's bigger than Windows was as far as the monopoly goes.
1: Right. So what's the difference between, you know, a company that has an unfair advantage or that has a monopoly versus a company, and I guess this is Google's position here, that is just really good, that is just really popular?
4: So the antitrust laws in the U.S. require two things to find uh, illegal monopolization. The first is you have to be a monopoly, which means you just have to have a very large share in a well-defined market of the market, and Google so far in litigation has not really disputed that, although they could still dispute that at trial. Mm -hmm. The other thing you have to do is you have to have obtained or maintained that market share through something called a bad act, and truly there's no more specific term in the law than that. There's certain categories of bad acts, um, and here they're alleging that they did it through exclusive dealing contracts. And essentially the question when you're asking about bad acts or indeed about exclusive dealing is, is this the kind of thing that you did in order to make sure the competitors couldn't edge their way in? Or is this something that you did because you believed it was the best way to deliver the product to the consumers? Do the consumers benefit from your behavior?
1: Right. And so, the, yeah, this isn't just about the choices consumers are making, but this is also about the, uh, the way in which Google has sought to, to stifle the competition. A big part of this uh, that the government is focused on are some of these deals that, that Google has signed with other companies. So, so where does that factor in?
4: Well, Google very much does want this to be about choices that consumers are making. They're going to say, just like you said, that we are big because we're better. And they're also going to say that competition is just a click away. So if you don't like Google preloaded on your iPhone, then, you know, you can go through some processes, which I don't even know what they are, right. to put something like Bing or DuckDuckGo on your phone. Um, and if you haven't done that, Google is going to say, it's because you think that Google is better. And the thing that I think this argument misses is that, you know, you said that Google is going to say that they're, they're big because they're great. And I think in search, part of the problem is that they're great because they're big. So you need a large amount of data to build an algorithm that works for search, to build the artificial intelligence that it works on. And Google, through these exclusive dealing contracts, has made sure that no other potential competitor has that kind of data, that access to the consumers, to build a competitive product. So it's not enough to say that Google is better than Bing. The question is, do these contracts make it so a company like Bing could never, even if it had the same brilliant engineers and the same great ideas, could never get to where Google is today in terms of quality of the product?
1: The Google has a lot of influence. Maybe even there's there's an intimidation factor when it comes to, to signing deals with companies and, and the pressure that then exists to, to be a part of that ecosystem?
4: I think that's right, and I think that there's also a pressure. Um, that Google's going to make a, a big deal out of in the trial um, to to load Google on your phone because that's what people want and expect. Uh, and the other thing is, you know, we, we think of Google as sort of bullying these companies into these contracts maybe, and that does actually describe what happened in the Microsoft case in the early 2000s and late, late 1990s. But here, it's kind of the opposite. Google is not bullying anybody. Google is paying them millions of dollars a year. We don't exactly know, uh, not, not millions, sorry, billions mm-hmm. of dollars a year um, for the privilege of being the default on these phones. We don't know the exact number. And so, you know, the question of that is, is that revenue sharing, which is what Google's gonna say, or is that a, a fee, a price that they're paying in order to stay dominant?
1: It's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, that antitrust case from, uh, you know, 25 years ago, I mean, that opened the door to to Google being able to to create uh, Chrome, its it's own internet browser. And here we are today where, you know, Microsoft is, I I guess for all intents and purposes, maybe the the biggest challenger to Google through their Bing search engine. But, uh, you know, Google controls 90% 90% of the market. So it's interesting to look at, you know, how Google benefited from that decision 25 years ago and how Microsoft is is hoping that in this time a big tech company is is again found to to have violated antitrust law.
4: Yeah, I mean the the flip-flopping on the V, you know, is it so and so versus so and so. You you can find examples back in the 90s and early 2000s where Apple is the is the little guy, the little right. upstart competitor. I think it's only natural that, you know, what we want out of competition is that these things flip-flop, um, but the reality is Google has been dominant in search for nearly as long as that case is old, and that's an awfully long time. I think that what we want is the competitive environment that allowed the Google to start and to, and to be great. Um, we want that environment to be true today. And right now, yes, Google was that. And now it's standing in the way of that kind of innovation.
1: So what can come out of a case like this? And, and what we saw against Microsoft then is maybe the blueprint for this. So it's not just about finding a, a company, but then it's about starting to dismantle a, a lot of you know, this, this infrastructure and this ecosystem that does exist. So if this case goes against Google, what, what would happen after that?
4: Yeah, so in the, in, the, in, the, in Europe, the major thing is fines. That's not as big of a thing in the U.S. This, there will be injunctive relief in a case like this. Mm-hmm. But the, in, the injunction will likely not be to break up Google, uh, as the, the, the um, government has asked for in some other cases. But rather, the logical remedy in a case like this is to say you can't have these exclusive dealing contracts anymore, or they can't be designed in this way. You have to make it possible for other entrants to enter. But that's only going to maybe indirectly or maybe in the long term change the competitive environment because Google has gotten so big and so dominant and has so much data that even with these pathways opened up, it's going to take some time before there's really a competitive threat to Google. Maybe the change in our AI technology is going to hasten that along.
1: So if there's an inability to, to you know, convict basically Google here, or, you know, if, if there's an inability really even after uh, a finding of yield to, to dismantle all of that that's in place, I mean, how much are these laws almost, how much of a test is this for these laws right now?
4: So I think the two scenarios you ran through are actually quite different. So I think if the government wins this case and there's good law on the books for the idea of using a case like Microsoft to bring the modern day tech giants to heal in terms of competition. I think that that's great and that's very important, even if it doesn't instantly or even ultimately restore competition to search per se. Mm-hmm. I think it's important for the tech companies to see that they cannot engage in bad acts as monopolists and this kind of thing is a bad act. I think that could really change firm behavior. But your question of you know, what, happens, what happens if they lose What does that say about our antitrust laws? I think that that's a really good question. And I think, you know, unfortunately, I think losing is probably the most likely outcome. It's very hard to win monopolization cases. There's been some interest recently in being harder on tech, but there's also a lot of recent losses in the courts. And I do think that that raises some questions about whether or not we need legislation or we need at least to better educate judges about what those antitrust laws are for
1: stakes are high. I think uh, folks are going to be watching closely this week. I know you will be Professor Allensworth. Thank you again. Uh, Thanks again for the insight. Appreciate you joining us here this afternoon.
4: Thank you very much.
1: All the best. Uh, That's Rebecca Hall, Allensworth Antitrust uh, Law Professor at Vanderbilt Law School. So kind of an overview of what's at stake here. Uh, what it could mean potentially for Google, depending on how this all goes, and some of the parallels to the big case from 25 years ago, where Microsoft came up uh, on the losing end. And it really opened the door to some meaningful competition when it came to Internet browser systems. Uh, Microsoft had quite an advantage back then. And they were pretty dominant when it came to uh, Internet browsing. And they sought to use their position to you know, enshrine, basically, that, that dominance, to block out any competition. But they lost that case. That opened the door to to other companies being able to develop their own. Google Chrome, as an example. Uh, So here we are, and now we've got it flipped, where Google was the tiny upstart against Microsoft's dominance in 1998. Hey, welcome back. Rob Brigham with you. We've uh, been hearing a lot lately about the advancement of AI technology, and it feels like artificial intelligence technology has really just kind of exploded uh, in recent years, or maybe even in recent months. And so there's a lot of question, a lot of uncertainty, I guess, as to where this is all headed and what it's going to mean. Like, this is the kind of thing that can be really useful and can really even improve productivity are already seeing it being adopted in, in various sectors. But with that comes fears about the impact on jobs and disruption to the labor market. A lot of people wondering, is AI basically going to make my job obsolete? Either that that job won't be necessary or that AI technology will basically be able to do it. And it's hard to answer those questions right now. But I think there's a lot of assumptions that it is going to be negative, and from that, a lot of calls for government to step in and try to regulate all of this. Now, maybe broadly speaking, there's a need to regulate this technology, but I think we should be cautious about how far we're prepared to go or how far we're demanding government go based on fears. So a new paper out from the McDonnell Laurier Institute today uh, on artificial intelligence and how big a threat is it to middle class white collar jobs, suggesting maybe some of these fears are overblown or at least unfounded. Joining us to talk more about it uh, is the uh, author of this paper. Joining us all on the line here this afternoon is Philip Cross, as uh, a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, also spent uh, 36 years at Statistics Canada focusing on macroeconomics. Uh, Philip Cross, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
3: Well, Thanks for having me back, Rob.
1: All right. So, like I say, I mean, it feels like this technology is just growing uh, you know quicker than we can really wrap our heads around it. So how much at this point can we state with certainty about its, its current or future impact?
3: Well, that's what I try to look at in the paper is, you know, put the hype aside. You know, there's always a lot of hype surrounding technology. We saw it with Bitcoin and that didn't work out. And we're seeing it now with AI. And so I thought what, what I would do in this paper is, look at what is the impact right now. Not Don't extrapolate in the future. We don't know what's gonna happen in the future with precision, right. but let's look at what's happening right now. We have a labor market here in Canada that the number one problem is labor shortages, not mass unemployment. The number two problem of our economy is chronically weak productivity growth. If we were seeing AI having a big impact, we should be seeing large gains in productivity as uh, as technology displaces persons we're seeing the exact opposite and we're also seeing a decline in inequality we're not seeing the the kind of increase in white collar unemployment that people worried about uh, the stealing of middle class good middle class jobs uh just the opposite especially during the pandemic we saw uh lower and blue collar workers and middle class jobs uh, they're the ones where the incomes have gone up the most so the conclusion is that on the ground, what is actually happening in the economy today is you. there is no visible impact. What I then do then is compared to what these same people were forecasting 10 years ago, and you go back to 2013, and there are all kinds of forecasts that, you know, we'd all be driving driverless cars now, or sorry, we'd be occupying uh, driverless cars, mm-hmm. uh, that there would be, you know, 50% job losses, and none of that's come true. So if these people, if their track record is so bad, uh, then why are we listening to them? Why are we giving them a credibility that they haven't earned?
1: It feels like we could go back even further. I mean, you know, the rise of, of automation or, you know, the rise of computing technology, mobile technology, the Internet, like all along the way, there's kind of been this fear about new technology, how disruptive it might be. But, you know, there's also a lot of upside. You know, maybe some jobs do become obsolete as a result of technology, but new industries, new jobs are, are created. Hasn't that been the experience along the way?
3: Well, that's the, that's the third part of the paper is we look at, OK, not just that the experts currently have gotten eye A- wrong but people's forecasts of technology going back 200 years to the very beginning of the industrial revolution have chronically been wrong uh it goes back to the uh, you know the luddites were the original anti-technology people uh every recession we've ever had has been blamed uh partly on technology uh Keynes blamed uh, the unemployment of the 1930s partly on, uh, on, he was the one that coined the, the phrase technological unemployment. So this fear has been around for a long time, and it's never panned out. Uh, in the longer term, it's always been the case that when technology has taken uh, hold in a in a sector or in an economy, it's boosted productivity. Now, we haven't seen that from AI yet, right. but if we ever were to see AI have an impact on productivity, it would raise it. And in the past, what's happened is higher productivity has led to more uh, higher incomes and more jobs. Uh, so, you know, th- that's, uh, you know, people have been... Getting technology wrong when it comes to forecasts, as I say, since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution over 200 years ago. And I think a lot of what we're seeing in AI today, the hype around AI or the fear around it, is uh, is exactly uh, just repeating the same mistake over and over again.
1: Which maybe, I guess, you know, it does say something about, you know, the value of humans, I guess, to put it that way, right?
3: Oh, very much so. Um, that, uh, you know, again, people talk about, well, we're going to replace, um, you know, pe- most people will not get on an airplane if there isn't a pilot there. Right. Uh, and the, the computer in the airplane does 95% of of the flying. And yet people understand that. You know, if if my plane hits a bird during takeoff, I want a human there to be able to take things over and and uh, deal with emergencies. It's the same thing with driverless cars. I mean, uh, ten years ago, uh, supposedly we were just two or three years away. Well, it turns out that humans do more than just you know conduct a vehicle down the street. Uh, If they're they're a bus driver, they ensure the safety of passengers. If they're a truck driver, they ensure that that, uh, the goods in the the vehicle aren't stolen. Uh, So people vastly underestimate what it is that humans do. And what humans are best at is the thing that computers have the hardest time replacing, which is uh, using judgment, deploying intuition, dealing with the unexpected um i mean i just came the drove back from uh, quebec city you can get you don't need chat gbt to figure out what i was doing in quebec city and all the way back is my stupid car which is only a year old i think it has the latest technology and it's just costly it confuses uh pedestrians and bicyclists on the side with a with a vehicle and it slams the brakes on in my car it's it's Telling me that, you know, asking me constantly, just when I hit Montreal two hours away, it says it constantly starts bugging me. Do you want to take a drip break? Do you need some coffee? No, I need you to stop bothering me so I can deal with Montreal traffic. Uh, So I I really think uh, that the hype is uh, exaggerated.
1: Well, it's interesting because, you know, with AI, like other technology, as you say, I mean, there's there's a lot of potential upside and even some potential downside. But, you know, we were early on in this AI era and already we're we're seeing calls for some pretty heavy and interventionist regulation based on the fears, not necessarily the upside. So I think part of the implication of what you're looking at in, in this report is that maybe we need to be really cautious here about the kinds of regulations we're prepared to deploy at this point.
3: Yeah, and I think a lot of the exaggeration comes from AI proponents themselves, uh, as, as I note in the paper that um, you know these are the people who have the most to gain from from putting out uh, exaggerated claims about AI and saying, oh, it's going to lead to mass unemployment and possibly even human extinction. So we're all supposed to be in awe of this all-powerful all, all powerful technology. And in fact, uh, you know, the, the damn thing has trouble driving a vehicle down the street, a task that we uh, allow teenagers in our society to do on their own. So uh, I, I think there are reasons to think that people in the industry are deliberately exaggerating uh, the power of this technology and, and that's why I'm saying let's just stand back and look at how forecasts of PAX technologies have worked out and how even how the forecasts of these very same people have worked out over the last 10 years because uh, yes, chat GBT brought on an hysteria about this earlier this year, but there's been forecasts about the singularity and, and artificial intelligence and all this. I mean, this has been around for 20 years, and it just hasn't panned out.
1: Yeah. The paper's up at uh, ca. Artificial intelligence, how big a threat to middle-class white-collar jobs. Philip Cross, thanks again for joining us here today. Appreciate it.
3: My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Ron. All the
1: best. Uh, Philip Cross, Monk Senior Fellow of the McDonald laurier Institute. So suggesting maybe we uh, take a deep breath on all of this and see how this plays out. And there's a lot of potential upside from this technology, the kind of productivity gains that this kind of technology can enable. But The fact that we're not really seeing any of that, uh, either the good or the bad, uh, suggests that maybe so far a lot of this is overblown, but we are very early on in this technology. Uh, What's it going to look like in 10 or 20 or 30 years? It's hard to know. Are we just assuming the worst at this point? What are the lessons we can learn from past Uh, technology gains or even technology revolutions. It's not the first time we've gone through this kind of phase of uncertainty and the worry that, you know, it's going to cost us our jobs. But along the way, we figure out how to adapt to this technology, how to make use of it, the kinds of new jobs and new industries uh, that can result. And so overall, despite, you know, blips here and there, the recessions that happen and that sort of thing, uh, overall employment continues to grow. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.